Hello everyone, welcome to New Wave Global. I am Zirak and today we will be discussing the political economy of Pakistan, primarily how economic development might function in the context of Pakistan where there's a lot of political instability in recent times. Our whole, our guest today uh, is, is Dr. Adil Malik. He is, he is he is an associate professor in the University of Oxford, Oxford's International Development Department. He researches primarily on political economy of development, focusing on Pakistan and the Middle Eastern region. He completed his DPhil in economics from University of Oxford, and and we believe that his research expertise will be very much informative for our discussion today. So before we go on into the discussion, let's look at what is going on in Pakistan at this point in time. Pakistan, in theoretical terms, should have its next general election due in the next two months. But as of now, we see there is no move made by the election commission and the concerned establishment authorities to go towards hosting an election. There's talk about having the a problem of property limitations and then going on to the election. But what it's doing is it leaves Pakistan with a government that's unrepresentative of what people want. Therefore, making policy decisions that are that that have not taken the people of Pakistan into confidence. So with this, at this juncture, we see in very recent times that the country's chief of army staff held a meeting in Karachi with the country's many uh, renowned industrialists and said that we are going to take care of the political situation and we will create mechanisms that will improve our economy. So at one time we see that there might be a gloomy situation where we're not having elections, people's mandate is not being represented, represented, but then there's also move towards having a better economy. At this point in time, our question to you, Dr. Adil, is, is this the right way of settling or stabilizing your economy the way the you know the establishment is trying to do? Right. I mean, I think Pakistan is going through, as we all know, a historic um, uh, sort of political and economic crisis, monumental proportions. Since 1971, we've seen um, uh, such an extended period of political instability that has stretched over almost two years. And um, that political instability has clear implications for the economy. Uh, we have not really uh, completed our IMF program. We are facing these twin deficits, balance of payments problem, ballooning fiscal deficit, loss of investor confidence. So the confluence of economic and political crises uh, has been, I don't know whether this is unprecedented, but certainly uh, in my lifetime, I haven't seen a crisis of this sort. Now, what Pakistan requires effectively is a fundamental uh, reset of its political economy. Because without that reset, you can neither have political stability nor you could have economic instability. Now, 
let's start with the meeting that the uh, army chief had with the businessman. Most of your viewers would know that uh, this is not unprecedented. Uh, in recent years, we've seen uh, most of the army chiefs um, post Musharraf, uh, even after the military government uh, sort of uh, transitioned into in, into into elected governments, um, the army chiefs have met um, uh, businessmen from time to time, right? Um, now this meeting with businessmen is not just about creating a new economic reform program because if that was the case you know the army chief could have spoken with economic experts with independent professionals with think tanks with you know institutions such as the pakistan institute of development economics which is generating a lot of debate you have a lot of uh, economists at the iba at lums you know other universities there could have been um, a broader interaction. My own understanding as a political economist is that the business segment of Pakistan is a key element of what I call the system of authoritarian power sharing, right? Um, entrenched businesses in Pakistan from the very early period have had very strong relations um, with the country's uh, military establishment. They are not to be blamed any businessman would like certainty. They would like commitment. Uh, in many poor countries where rule of law is weak, it is difficult to solve what economists would describe as the commitment problem. The biggest problem that an investor faces is that he or she invests large sums of money in an economy. And most of those projects are, uh, you know, run into several years. Some of them are over decades. So you need intertemporal commitments. You need commitments over time. And the big commitment that an investor or a businessman faces is predictability and stability of the business environment, that their assets, their investments will not be threatened, they will not be expropriated. So typically, they would align with the most stable, with the most uh, sort of powerful institution in any country, right? So if, for example, foreign investors are investing or even Gulf investors are investing in Egypt, they would go for the Egyptian military. If they're investing in, in Morocco, they're going to form partnerships with the Moroccan king, right? Who also owns a lot of companies and so on and so forth. So, so the point that I'm trying to make is that in, a, in an environment which lacks political stability, where there is no rule of law, businesses typically align themselves with the most stable element, right? And seek assurances from them. Now, as it happens, a lot of the, these entrenched businesses in Pakistan have been or have become over time an important part of what I call the system of authoritarian power sharing. What do we mean by that? Typically, in popular press, popular academic jargon, we talk about civil-military relations, as if civil is something different from the military. In many of the countries like Pakistan, um, autocrats, and I would say this is actually a global phenomenon. There's a lot of work by people like Milan Swanek, uh, Jennifer Gandhi, a whole range of other scholars who've talked about, um, you know, how autocratic rule survives. And the basic idea in much of this academic scholarly work is that, is that authoritarian rule is not a solo performance. It is joint rule. 
you need to rule with other groups in society. You need to ensure that they support you. And I think in the Pakistani context, a lot of what we describe as civil have in one way or another partnered with the military regime, given it, it uh, uh, this regime their support, provided it legitimacy, and they have been part of what you know scholars would call joint rule. This is the system of authoritarian power sharing with the military and the establishment sitting at the heart of it, but they need allies in judiciary. There's a lot of work on judicial politics, uh, including by my Oxford colleague, um, uh, whose, whose book on uh, Yasser Quresh, whose book on judicial politics has made a lot of waves. Um, so judiciary is important. They have their allies in the bureaucracy, especially the police, you know, a lot of control. Uh, they have allies with uh, academics and intellectuals who've given uh, some a veneer of legitimacy to the autocratic rulers. They have their allies in think tanks, uh, uh, right? And some of those think tanks are foreign-funded think tanks. They've been allies. They have media is emerged as a big ally. I mean, media has always been, you know, sort of controlled. I mean, if you were looking at the Jung newspaper or other print newspapers. In the in the 80s or in the 60s, they've you know uh, press and publication ordinance under Ayub Khan. These were all attempts to control the media. So media is also an important part of the system of authoritarian power sharing. Uh, the landed elites, the political elites in particular, are key part. And you've seen this in the clearest term during the PDM government, because a lot of them are so-called democratic parties, but they've practically aligned with the authoritarian power structure. The one who was deposed, Imran Khan's PTI, obviously came with the support of uh, the military as well. But at, th at this instance, it was challenging the military and the other ganged up. So ultimately, a lot of these political parties, I would call them, also not necessarily civil. They're part of this system of authoritarian power sharing. They provide continued support. They give it sustenance. They give it practical legitimacy, so on and so forth. In this milieu, another group that is important for understanding the system of authoritarian power sharing is the business group. Because large established businesses have historically been, for the reasons that I described earlier in this podcast, um, were, have supported the military. Right? They have direct lines of communication with the military. The problem, however, is that a lot of these businesses seek protection. They are not competitive with businesses who are competing in global markets, they're asking for fundamental economic reforms. These businesses, and I'm obviously um, generalizing a lot because there'll be a lot of exceptions, but these businesses in general are the ones that actually obstruct economic reform. So let me give you a few examples. Um, there was a great book that students and scholars like yourself should study. It's a journalistic piece of work not a lot of analytical content, but it has data. Who owns Pakistan? This was Shahidur Rahman's book in 1990s. I think it came out in 1997 or six, probably 98, but late 90s. Um, and he doc systematically documented all the businesses, the 40 or 42 business families that controlled Pakistan. Uh, many of these business families were allies of uh, Ayub Khan. Uh, many of these, sorry, okay, no worries, no worries. 
Um, many of these business families were also part of Musharraf's uh, uh, and, and, and Zia's uh, reform programs. Um, and uh, they benefited from privatization as well. Um, and they control large parts of the economy, largely by erecting entry barriers, by reducing competition through higher trade barriers. Um, and so to give you a very sort of street level example, you know, if you go to some broker in Karachi or uh, another place in the stock market, you know, who are the people who advise? Uh, well, it's Akhil Karim Dedis of this world. You know, I hate to take names, but you know, he's a he's a he's a notable actor. Mm -hmm. um, now, if you want to appoint the head of the the Securities and Exchange Commission, he will have a veto power on who will be appointed, right? Because his his interests got to be protected. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about sugar barons, they're in all political parties. You know, sugar is a classic example of the system of authoritarian power sharing because you have all the major sugar mill owners are, uh, you know, part of different political parties. It doesn't matter whether party X or Y or Z is in power, sugar interests will always be protected. And the military itself owns a sugar mill. There's a foggy sugar mill. So they are not the lead player, but they're also beneficiaries of this system, right? And what's important in this context to understand, and sugar perhaps is the best example because sugar is an important part of campaign finance. So as someone who's been a humble uh, student of the sugar market, this didn't really come as a surprise that the ECC approved their exports, provided them subsidies, because this is a form of campaign finance. It's almost like the development spending that is given out to, to, to local MPs. So in this system of authoritarian power sharing, economic reform is very difficult because if there's genuine economic reform, it will upset the system of authoritarian power sharing. If you go after, if you change the rules of the game through which the sugar market functions, uh, you effectively hurting the establishment's ability for political engineering because a lot of the same sugar actors who generate and earn rents in the sugar market are important in political engineering. They have planes, they have resources to spend, they use, recycle it in, right? Um, if you have a genuine sort of land reform, uh, or I mean, land reform, nobody even talks about these days, so let's forget about that, but at least agricultural income tax, right? Uh, some level of functioning agricultural income tax that removes the distortion of agricultural exemption uh, from the income taxation, that would be problematic because some of the big landed families have historically been allies of the military. They are part of the system of authoritarian power sharing. So in this system of authoritarian power sharing, if you try and implement structural reform, it gets to the, it, it, it is seen as a threat to that system of authority. So a very long-winded answer in the traditional academic mode. I'm a lecturer at the end of the day. So, but I really wanted to give you a holistic perspective on this interaction between the businessman and the army chief. And in that system of authoritarian power sharing, this interaction is important for two reasons. This continued political instability has hurted the investors and businessmen in Karachi. If you speak to them privately, they are panicked 
and they are asking what is the military doing? What is their plan? Right? So a key element of the system of authoritarian power sharing, even if not vocally, you know, behind closed doors is worried where is the country headed? So it, in this context, it was not surprising that the, the, the military chief had to go and meet with this, these businessmen and assure them that, look, don't worry, we are on that trajectory. But so now from what you've told me, it's there are two ways to look at it. Either that the meeting is successful, the business owners are not panicking anymore because they've met with the big boss at this point in time. And, you know, if the assurity comes from the highest authority, it must have some credibility. But then, you know, how the country is headed, we see that, you know, until then, we barely were able to, you know, get the IMF deal. And how the IMF deal works is that it lends you money for a temporary period of time. Um, in case of Pakistan, it's been quite a permanent temporary cycle because we've this is the 23rd time we've gone to them. But still, the idea is that it's for a temporary liquidity crisis and the country will have their house in order by the time, you know, and then the liquidity crisis will be solved. They'll be able to repay their debts because the assumption is that the country will be solvent with the IMF help. Now, at this point in time, do you think that was this meeting and in the context of the IMF deal actually, you know, get being approved. Do you think this is a good way, good direction for the economy to go in? And then if not, how do elections or the lack of elections, you know, impact the economic stability? Because some people argue that under Musharraf, when the elections were not really very democratic, the economy was improving at a much better rate than it was under democratic governments. Then there's a case of whether those governments were really democratic or not. But I mean, people do compare the Musharraf time with the time of People's Party and the time of PMLN and then with the time of 2018 onwards. So do you think within the structure that you've painted out, is there any way to you know improve economy within while having this structural imbalance? Yeah, so there are three parts to your question. One is the, the dealing with IMF and the prospect of an IMF program and our stop-start cycle with mm -hmm. IMF as well as with economic growth. The second really is about elections, and that's another variable in the picture. And the third sort of element is the suggestion commonly made in Pakistan that compares military economic performance with political regimes. Mm -hmm. um, Okay, so let me begin with the first first key aspect. Uh, Pakistan has been part of you know twenty two or twenty three IMF programs. IMF programs, in my opinion, are part of the problem, and the reason is that they shift a lot of the burden of adjustment on the poorer segments of society. Right, in political economy, we often um, uh, sort of think about when do regimes reform? So if there's a ruler, when is he incentivized to reform? One is that the ruler faces domestic pressure. There are a lot of protests on the street. There's, you know, genuine public mobilization that forces the government to undertake certain reform. The second is that international institutions 
um, whose support is critical for many of these governments, can tie the hands of the rulers. So in international trade, we typically say, you know, rulers, political incumbents uh, want to pander to protectionist trade lobbies within the country. But once you sign on the, the World Trade Organization, once you sign international trade agreements, they commit you and tie your hands vis-a-vis -vis domestic protectionist lobbies, which is to say you're unable to uh, uh, undertake reform because certain lobbies are restricting that reform. But once the international institution ties your hand, you have to implement that reform. The problem in our context is that international institutions haven't really tied our hands. So let's just look at one key indicator, which is tax reform. Since the 1980s, multiple commissions and reports have been sponsored by international financial institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, um, uh, Asian Development Bank. I think the Asian Development Bank, I'm given to believe, is um, sponsoring another tax reform program. Uh, they never make these reform, uh, you know, reform reports public. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about, for example, agricultural income tax, bringing the real estate you know, into taxation. The problem with these institutions is that tax reform itself is a very political question, right? If you tax the real estate, you tax the real estate groups, right? Who are very extremely powerful, as we know, uh, and even the establishment has its stake in the real estate sector. Um, my sense is that this system of authoritarian sharing, power sharing in Pakistan, cannot be sustained without regular cash injections from the outside world. In the 60s and 80s, it used to be in the guise of the US foreign aid. Increasingly now, it's become more diffused. It's the IMF giving you money, whole range of other uh, multilateral institutions giving you money, which basically supports your balance of payments. And then the Gulf countries, you know, Saudi Arabia, UAE, others. But as you have seen, the Gulf countries uh, increasingly coordinate with the IMF, which yeah, means yeah. that it's it's part of this coordinated international package of money. And um, they also don't want free lunch. They want some investments. They want some returns, right? But as far as I'm concerned, as a political economist, these are all different guises of geopolitical rents, right? These are unearned income streams, manna from heaven that come in, prop up a regime, support them uh, it for, a, for, a, for a short span of time. Now, Pakistan over the last decade and a half, I think is under international sanctions, disguised international sanctions. So there are international sanctions on Syria, there are sanctions on uh, uh, you know, Iran. Um, of course, there are more, there are stricter sanctions, but Pakistan is under larger economic surveillance it is part of, you know, this sort of coercive economic statecraft that the West has has, has devised. Um, the FATF was a key part of it. The IMF programs increasingly require U.S. approval. And again, in this period, it's very clear that, uh, you know, the finance minister um, is meeting the American ambassador. You have the army chief, you know, meeting their Gulf patrons. Uh, and at the prime minister, whether it's Imran Khan or Shabazz Sharif, they're coming out, you know, it's amazing. You know, there's a lot of data here for social scientists. They're actually coming out and saying publicly uh, that I want to thank the army chief for facilitating the IMF deal. Now, 
what has the army chief got to do with IMF deal? Well, the army chief spe speaks with the Gulf patrons. He speaks with this, with Pentagon, with American um, interlocutors. And when the army chief speaks, it's not just economic uh, arrangement, it's a geopolitical <laughs> arrangement. You have to, there's some geopolitical exchange. So I think the beauty, uh, if I would, might say so, although this is a really bad word in the present circumstances, but the beauty for the social scientists in this situation is that moments of crisis reveal the true nature of the underlying regime. The crisis that we are going to has revealed the power of authoritarian power sharing, and it has also revealed the role of international actors in sustaining and propping up uh, the, 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 the system of authoritarian power sharing. So that's why you would see the IMF program comes in, it stabilizes the deck for sort of two years, uh, and then you get on to another IMF program. And then you go to get on to another it and it doesn't really use its systematic leverage. So, for example, if the IMF were to say, here are these very tough economic reforms that you have to undertake, come what may. For example, in Pakistan's context, the economy's fundamental productive incentive structure is vastly Hello. Excuse me. Returns will be made. A lot of this is financialized rent seeking, right? And um, uh, you know, there's this, you know, those whole thing about know your customer. You're buying a product in Beria, DHA, or others. You know, this KYC is hardly there. A lot of undocumented economy, and uh, you know, this is this is a big uh, Disney World for all these elites who want to earn quick returns transfer their assets abroad, right? Um, and impoverish people. Now, is the IMF sleeping on this whole system? It knows very well, It you know, uh, they even dictate to the extent to which who could be the, the finance minister, what they will be doing, right? When Bajwa went to Washington DC um, and one of my very close friends who was part of some of these meetings, you know, uh, told me that um, he was told in no uncertain terms that you have to be remain on the IMF program. So the IMF program is a pretty important leverage that mm -hmm. United States, Europe uh, has in its dealings with Pakistan. And if there was a really good IMF program, they could actually tie the hands of the ruling elite, but they've given them a vast leeway to, uh, uh, to, to, to remain in that state Right. So that's the external uh, point that you raised. As far as elections are concerned, elections alone are not going to solve the problem because uh, obviously all the political players are fundamentally opposed to reform. Right. Uh, Imran probably was someone who talked a lot about devolution. He talked a lot about tax reform. He talked a lot about, you know, and he uh, basically published the sugar report. So in terms of his rhetoric, and he was against development spending given to MPs, I would say he's someone who comes closer at, in the at the rhetorical level to talking a few things about reform, right? But again, his vision is overseas Pakistanis will come and invest in Pakistan and all the problems will be solved. It's extremely childish, right? Um, that, that is one other form of rent seeking, right? Because now you're not so, so there is no real political understanding of what reform entails, and it's true for all political parties, right? Um, 
So elections, whichever party comes in power, will be incentivized to continue giving protection to the business elites, will continue pandering to real estate interest groups, will continue to keep the tax exemption alive, will continue to use the Economic Coordination Committee in a particular ways. The rents will continue to pass to key groups. So elections alone are not, uh, not going to solve. But I think there's something to be said about predictability in your environment, right? Elections will not solve out things. And, you know, most countries take dozens of years to solve. But look, entrenched political instability since the 1990s has harmed us in a profound way. You know, I was growing up as a, uh, as a teenager in the 1990s. And I remember when I used to study at Sasaid College and, you know, studying economics, I would see, you know, one government is coming in, another is going out, right? Um, you know, Ishaq Khan was doing this thing about, you know, one government coming in, another going in. It's almost like a revolving door. And the 90s was the time when I remember I did my undergrad dissertation at the time on multi-fiber agreement on the textile quotas. They were being phased out. And at that time, Pakistan was considered as a country that is best poised to benefit from the, the removal of quotas, textile quotas. That was a big development, the MFA. But in that decade, rather than solving our energy question, rather than creating the space for economic reform, we were uh, promoting political instability. That's the time when Bangladesh took off, right? We wasted that decade. And again, during the Musharraf period. So yes, elections will not solve the problem, but we need to have continuing free and fair elections. And elections are important, not just for economic reform, Remember, elections are the primary means through which any regime or any political dispensation seeks legitimacy. There is no legitimacy. There is no state-society relationship. It's fundamentally broken at the moment. And if we delay elections, we, we endanger the foundation of the state. Because remember, you know, another uh, a scholar that people should read about is Adnan Nasimullah at King's College. And his work on patchwork states makes it a very important, powerful argument that a lot of the states where the state society relationship is broken, where institutions of conflict management are absent, you have sovereignty contesting forms of violence. People rise against the state. And where you have some of these institutions like the courts, the judiciary, the media, political avenues for representation, right? avenues for political expression. Those are the spaces where you have sovereignty neutral form of expression. So the more the state tries to control the media, the more it uh, denies electoral representation, right? The more it tries to control uh, a judiciary, the more it invites sovereignty contesting forms of violence. And so nobody's asking this question in the Pakistani context. Why did nine May happen? Why did people have to go and attack military installations. As a social scientist, it's obvious for me. It's very clear because you control all the courts, you know, mm -hmm. take all avenues there. You control the media completely. You postpone elections. You're inviting sovereignty contesting forms of violence. You are responsible for that violence. And the more we postpone elections, the more we challenge the foundation of the state. So. Make no mistake, 
whoever is the powerful person or institution in the country that's playing this game, they're fundamentally endangering the security of Pakistan. They're standing uh, in front of people. And when an institution such as the military actually um, stands in front of the people, it invites sovereignty contesting. So the delay of elections is no mean matter. It's, it's actually it, an attack on the sovereignty of the state. So now, I mean, from what we conclude, election on its own is not going to solve the structural problem. Elections might prevent it from getting much worse as it is. Because at the end of the day, election can be a signaling game that, you know, at least one thing is going right for the country, that they're holding free and fair elections or whatever form of elections every four to five years. And secondly, you know, it does in one way or the other hold the government to account in some ways because, as we have said, all political parties will not try to break the, uh, the structure of dominance that exists. But to some extent, there is ideological differences in terms of macroeconomic policy, in terms of how, you know, uh, political parties differ on the functions of the state bank. These, you know, these topics do come at the forefront and people, not everyone, but when there are, you know, concerns are represented, represented, obviously, you know, we'll see some bit of positive change. Now, going on from this, we see that at this point in time, competition in terms, there's a lot of, you know, we have an antitrust crisis at this point in time because businesses are not operating under any form of competition. Sugar mafias are colluding on prices. They criticize each other when, when it comes to political gains and political blames, but they never, they always collude on sugar prices sugar hoarding. We've seen all sorts of things during all sorts of political regimes. Under these circumstances, do you think that the army as an institution, which obviously is not, you know, uh, it does not have to take into account the public perception as much as the political parties need to, do you think that they can be useful in enforcing some level of strict coordination or, you know, using their stick to sort of getting all these stakeholders in line, perhaps doing some bit of land reform. Or do we see that since they seek their legitimacy from these very feudal laws, from these very big industrialists, nothing is necessarily going to change? Like, what is your verdict on this? Yes, so um, that's a very good question. And uh, before that, let me also uh, provide an answer to the third question that I forgot to, which is the military performance. And very briefly, performance under military regimes is better in part because there's a bit more stability, obviously, at that time. And there's a lot more inflow of external resources. So it stabilizes the exchange rate. It creates a consumption boom, as it did under Musharraf's period. Um, lot more you know debt relief that came in that time period so obviously the ordinary person doesn't know they just care about you know there was more stability in prices at that time there was more job creation there was greater uh, sort of economic activity but a lot of that is part of the stop start cycle of growth 
right? Because it's it's just artificially inflated. Um, but it certainly does tell us that when there's a bit more stability, that is also good for, for economic growth. But military performance is purely manufactured. Now, I think the question you've raised is important because um, in political economy, we often think about when do elites, when are elites incentivized to reform? And I think we are entering into an interesting phase in Pakistan's history where economic, the economic question has shot up uh, to prominence uh, in ways that hasn't been before. Uh, the military itself, I think, now realizes that they can no longer control the show without controlling the economy. And so they are they're really incentivized to do something for economy, but they're not trained and their own interests, they're blinded by their own interests, those difficult adjustments that need to be made. Um, uh, they are not uh, 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 prepared for that. And because it's a system of authoritarian power sharing, if they try and implement reform in one area, it will affect their own interests. And I gave you examples from the sugar, from the real estate. You know, you have, if you want to change the fundamental incentive structure of the economy, um, you have to do something about the real estate sector. It's eating into our agricultural land. It's unproductive. It's not generating a lot of employment. It's diverting resources away from productive sectors where you can earn dollars and you can create jobs you can develop manufacturing towards uh, a rent-seeking sector. But in order to do that, they would have to have some reform within the army or there has to be a new debate within the military how they're going to run this show for, for long. I think if there's one institution that really benefits from reform, it's the military because it should have a long, long approach, right? So. You know, Imran Khan is in his 70s. He might think just for the 10 years. I'm just saying for argument's sake. Um, Nawaz Sharif and, and company, they're already settled outside. Uh, a lot of other politicians are settled outside, right? So they rule for a little while and go and settle outside, right? And now again, it's so blatant, right? You, you finish your tenure as a PM and then you fly to London, right? They don't even care for what the people think about these optics. Um, the military, one would assume, is an institution that uh, wants, that should, in principle, want genuine reform. Because if they want to continue to survive, if they want to continue to control the uh, the space, a reform which should be in their interest. The problem is, military itself is not thinking about its own interest. And the reason for it is that the military's power is concentrated in one person. That's the unfortunate reality of Pakistan. Because you know when we talk about military establishment, it's one person. Or add the DGISI to it as well, right? So they're two people. Now, in economics, there's a very interesting, uh, again, uh, uh, idea of time inconsistency, right? So in one of the articles that I'm writing, I'm talking about how in this regime, this fundamental time inconsistency of reform, which is to say, you know, you know, this deck is not sustainable. You know, you want economic growth. You know, you want reform. But if I am Asim Munir and if I am uh, Nadeem Manjum, I'm thinking about my next four or six years, right? And so you want to make, you don't want to unsettle. So for example, if there's a genuine reform towards the real estate sector, whoever is the army chief, 
even if I am the army chief, I would not do it. Why? Because I cannot keep my own institution, the military, coherent because a lot of its coherence depends on this continuing passing of threats to these various segments, right? And so that's why weak, perverse equilibria persist because the incentives of the actors who control power within institutions are not al fundamentally aligned with reform, right? Uh, that said, that said, if, if the military genuinely wants, as you said, they have the capacity. They delivered on FATF. They can do georeferencing and find the suspects for May 9 attack. Don't you think they know how tax evasion could be controlled, how excessive expenditures could be controlled? Because, you know, yes, we talk about expenditure reform, but my friend Nadeemul Haq makes a good point um, that there's need for expenditure reform, right? We're spending far too much, right? And, uh, you know, even if we collect tax dollars or tax revenues, um, we are not really spending in, in the right areas, right? So there's a lot of scope for reducing your, your spending. All of those decisions require that the military itself thinks for its interests. And I believe that over the last several decades, the military as an institution is not even thinking about its own institutional interests. Forget about the rest of the country. If the military were truly thinking as an institution about their interests, economic reform would be a fundamental priority for them. But the problem is military is not a monolithic institution. Who controls the military? And what incentives guide them? So forget about XYZ who are, who are controlling. Put Adil Malik as the head of the military. And if I am the head of the military, I want, you know, my survival is most important. I will work, I'll talk about economic reform the way I'm talking on this interview, but I will fundamentally be worried about my own political survival. So my political survival is keep the deck alive, implement some, some reforms, give some concessions to geopolitical partners, arrange some money for the next three years that I am, and hopefully get another extension for three years, six years. The military, the country, they can look after themselves. Because there's a lot of firefighting. And I'm myself very, I mean, at a time where there's so much uh, uh, dissension within the military, this was an unpopular decision. Imran Khan was very popular within the military. So military has to fight hard to maintain its ranks. At that time, if I'm going to say, look, you will not be getting these, uh, you know, multiple plots that you've been getting. We're going to reform the real estate sector. And by the way, the plots you get in the DHA will not be worth the same as they were before. Um, that's a difficult prospect at a time when you're already facing internal dissent. That's what makes reform extremely difficult. But I think what's needed now are elections, but also a larger debate, a discourse about what fundamental reform means. Because, you know, we are speaking from our comfortable surroundings in London and Oxford, and I'll go to Blackwell's after this for coffee and read books. The you know even my relatives in, in in the village that we come from or the people I interact with, life is so difficult. It, I've never seen this level of uh, difficulty before. I was speaking with a colleague at Lums yesterday, and I was telling you, a lot of the young scholars are, are wanting to leave Pakistan. This is going to be a mass exodus. So, the idea that you could pursue business as usual approach is gone, and I think this is a message 
not just for political parties, but also for the military, also for international powers that keep propping up the authoritarian regimes in developing countries like Pakistan, that their interests would be compromised if they continue to repeat the same uh, play over the, that, that has been running for the last 30 years. Something has to give way. It's a, a population with growing economic needs. They need energy. They need opportunities. You know, if, if I'm an American policymaker, a British policymaker, I'm just interested about China. But I think I need to think about a country that is 240 million people. You cannot keep it in a state of suspended equilibrium. You have to give that country some concessions so that they can reform, they can create some prosperity. You know, the ordinary person in Pakistan doesn't care about this geopolitics. What they mm -hmm. care about is their survival. And they want to integrate with the West. They want to send their children to UK, US universities. They want uh, to come here for job opportunities. They want to export, right? There's immense latent potential in Pakistan for a productive uh, engagement with the West. But the West has been denying that. It has been denying that uh, on, a, on a repeated basis by propping up these people, a small set of, a set of elite in the media industry, in uh, their interlocutors, the think tanks in Pakistan, uh, uh, the military, the politicians, for people are described as good politicals for them. They have to think about people. There needs to be a broader engagement. The idea that from Pentagon or FCO, you can FCDO, you can just rely on a few uh, individuals and through them to continue to rule and continue to uh, to assert your influence. That time has gone. Absolutely, that has gone. The writing is on the wall. They must engage with a broader set of actors, especially the young people, and give them genuine hope and opportunity. Right? Um, you know, in this milieu where there's uh, a delay in elections, you've seen how much of a uh, pushback the UK ambassador has got in social media. It's amazing. I've never seen such a thing before. The US ambassador going down, meeting the police official, meeting the election commission officials, so much flack on the social media. I've never seen that before. So I think the external powers need to realize that they are also setting into shoes where they think they can continue to do the things that they were doing before. I think the time is up. So I believe there is no better way to end the podcast with other than that closing statement. And so thank you very much, Dr. Adil, for your time. That this was indeed a very insightful discussion. And you know, we definitely discussed some important uh, you know, perspectives that usually we don't see being discussed in Pakistan's mainstream media, unfortunately, for various reasons. So thank you very much. That's the space for your initiative. I think I must say that a lot of these conversations I cannot have on the mainstream media or they would discard me. Um, so that's why these conversations, these are open, candid conversations where everybody could learn. Yeah. And again, I mean, I may be wrong in some of my assessments, but I think we need to have that open conversation. 100%. No, I definitely agree. So once again, thank you very much. Pleasure. And I have a good time. Ed.